This is episode number eight with Dan Pat. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on Your Impactful Journey. This is an awesome episode for me to bring you guys because Dan Paff has been one of my greatest coaching and therapy mentors and he's a genius. Dan is a track and field coach who coached Donovan Bailey to gold in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics and has coached many other world championship and Olympic medals in his time, including gold to Greg Rutherford in the 2012 Olympics and silver to our very own Aussie Fabrice Lapierre at the 2015 World Championships in the long jump, where his other athlete, that Darn Englishman again, Greg Rutherford, won the gold medal. Dan has also worked with many elite NFL and soccer stars and tennis players such as Maria Sharapova. I've spent time with Dan numerous times over the years and he's helped mentor me into the coach and therapist I am today. But in this episode, I don't really talk to him about track and field or athletes much for that matter. He has an abundance of value to offer in so many different areas and I believe this is the first episode of many with this exceptional human. In this episode, you will learn what mental resiliency actually is from his learnings of 45 years in the sporting trenches and his studies into the military, one of Dan's moments that he's not most proud of, how he went off the rails for five years and had some very turbulent times in his life, how he learned to use the biggest adversities in his life to redirect his journey in a positive direction and how he teaches this to others. We also talk about how Dan helped me through the toughest times in my life, his connection with the change in design of the Nike Free Shoe. Uh, we talk about our connection to chicken schnitzel and uh, some other some something really cool from my learning perspective in how he helped create context on a big decision in my life. Let's kick it off straight away, Dan. I want you to tell us how you did your thesis on pole vault. Well, it was a biomechanical analysis of um, an NCAA championship, our collegiate championships. And there were 16 ballers in the competition. And this is before computers. What year are we talking? Uh, This is about 1978, 79. So took uh, 8mm film of the jumps from three different cameras and analyzed like every step of the run, angle of the poles, uh, kinematics of the athlete, contact time, flight time, and projected the film up onto a wall and used onion skin paper to trace the athlete and then measure with protractors the angles. So this is uh, way before dart fish. <laughs> so you had to actually trace around that and you did that frame by frame yep for 16 walters how long did that take it was probably about three months with a protractor and a ruler and uh 
I had a hand crank projector and I had a fan blowing on the film to keep the film from melting because on a hand crank projector that the bulb has a tendency to burn film. So I had to create a fan system uh, to keep the film from burning while I was doing the tracings. (laughs) Now, the reason I asked you about that story is I remember you telling me about that a few years ago because uh, there was another young coach that was just made a little comment about um, the difficulty of dartfish and you said, oh, actually, you should see how I did my thesis on pole vault. (laughs) I thought it was brilliant. I think the positive is then you kind of understand, you know, how Dartfish and software is actually formulated and designed and programmed uh, and how much time it really saves you. Now, I probably could do that whole analysis in a day uh, instead of three months. How times have changed. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just like this interview. You're in Germany. I'm in Texas. Back in those days, you had to get calling cards. There's no fax machine. The world of sport has changed. For the better? Well, I think on some realms, yeah. On some realms, maybe it was more exciting to do it the old way. More challenging. Actually, I was thinking of you in those earlier days of yours uh, here. You mentioned I'm in Germany and earlier in the week because you've told me a lot of stories about your travels over your time and when you were a younger unpaid coach traveling the world and how you used to suss out which hotel breakfast buffets you could just wander into and eat and they either wouldn't ask you for your room number or then you'd give them a fake one and I was thinking about that because I actually uh, helped myself into a hotel buffet breakfast the other day where the team is staying but I'm staying at an Airbnb and I was thinking this is what Dan Paff was talking about. (laughs) Uh, Not one of my prouder moments but (laughs) survival takes over sometimes. That's right, absolutely. Now, uh, Dan, welcome to your life of impact. I'm extremely grateful to have you on the podcast and you mentioned I'm in Germany, which is actually your home country. Yeah, my <clears throat> father's side of the family um, is from Hanover, Leipzig area. Which, uh, where's that geographically? Uh, Hanover's in northern Germany. Uh, Leipzig's kind of northeast. Uh, Leipzig was actually in the old DDR uh, back in those periods. And as you mentioned, we're connecting on Skype, but uh, I will visit you next time. We'll do a part two in person, and hopefully it's in your home uh, in Texas where you are now, and I'll get to see your beautiful wife, Barb, again, and she'll be nearby, who I know really well from when I got brought you guys over to Australia. Well, that'd be great. Just realize we have uh, nine top 10 ranked barbecue stands within a 20-mile radius. <laughs> so we'll be eating a bit of meat. Yeah, bring amzines. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> now, I am in Germany preparing for our Para World Champs next week, and you'd normally be heading to the Abelbod World Champs, but this is your first one in how many years that you won't be attending? Well, the first one was in 1983 in Helsinki, and I've been blessed to be uh, at every one. So this will be the first time that I won't attend. How how is that? How does that sit with you? Well, it's always a good show, and it's great to catch up with friends and colleagues, and you know, experience the culture and, and the energy that goes on around those things. So 
a bit sad on one front, but uh, maybe it's time for another chapter on the other front. Fair enough. Now, speaking of chapters, Dan, you've been a big game changer in my life, not just in my career, but in my life. And I met you in November 2014 when I was fortunate enough to score an intern position at Altus in Phoenix, which was then known as the World Athletic Centre, actually. And since that time, you've been there for me through Skype, like we are now, through messages, emails, and you allowed me to bring you out to Australia to uh, to help me launch my company, Life, Living Intentionally for Excellence. And we put on coaching clinics and floss band clinics around the country. So like I said before, I'm extremely grateful that you're one of the first guests on this podcast as we strive to grow this movement and deepen the impact. Well, it's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure with you, Dan. Now, uh, we you've been a great mentor and a great mate, and I want to dive deeper into your influence, and we'll do that a bit later. But before we do, let's talk about mental resiliency. So I asked you this exact same question on my second trip to Phoenix in April 2015. And since that answer that you gave me, I've developed a lot of my sort of coaching and teaching methods uh, around this philosophy. And I teach people in and out of sport that, that the most powerful thing on the planet, the most powerful thing on the planet is the human brain. So I want you to tell us, Dan, what is mental resiliency? How do we practice it? How do we teach it? What is mental resiliency? Well, I think in a, in a real global or general sense, it, for me, it's the ability to have mental skills that allow you to control your emotions and your life outputs in, in a proper, efficient manner. Um, it, it's way more than just doing gut-busting workouts or doing breathing exercises. It's a a multi-layered, defined skill set toolbox, if you will, for controlling emotions and self-talk and thought processes and chunking information and coming up with contingency plans and alternative strategies uh, to bounce back from adversity or obstacles or barriers. So how do you, obviously it's very multi-layered and there's so many different ways that you would attack it at different times with different humans, but how? what's your sort of advice on how, how do we practice to become more mentally resilient? Well, I think that you break things into what we call mailboxes, you know, big components of your life and, and what you encounter in life. So like in sport, we have uh, lifestyle mailboxes, which, you know, diet, sleep, nutrition, uh, coping skills, life management, time management. Uh, we have uh, biomechanical mailboxes, like how you move and how you do things, you know, everything on the training menu, um, medical inputs, whether it be physical, emotional, or mental, or spiritual. And, uh, of course, programming, you know, how do you map out your day, your week, your month, your career goals over time uh, are some examples of defining mailboxes. And then once you have those mailboxes defined, uh, kind of building ergonomic hierarchies of things that fit in those mailboxes, if you will. What What do you feel like is the biggest barrier then for for humans to achieve this and to, to break it up and to make the most of it and tap into their, their inner power, mental power? Well, I think a lot of people have trouble with gut level honesty, you know, you know, actually pointing out or searching for or identifying 
you know, the cause for dysfunctional living. I think a second barrier is a lack of accountability group or people around them, people that are honest and hold them accountable to, to the plan going forward. So those would be uh, the first two things that I discuss with athletes or even myself on reflection daily is, you know, am I being totally honest here, totally revealing what's going on, what's bothering me, what's positive, what I'm grateful for? And then I have, I'm blessed to have guys like you and a lot of colleagues around the world that uh, supply me with layers of accountability partners to make sure uh, I, quote, stay on the beam. And what's what's your biggest personal challenge to to remain sounds like what you're talking about is congruency well i don't think that i'm not a big believer that there's such a thing as life balance i think it's something that's okay to aspire for but if you're truly driven and passionate about a project you know some things are going to have to be put on the back burner so for me it's it's this battle, this chess game of life balance, you know, not ignoring important people or moments in life at the expense of other pursuits. Yeah, and when I think of life balance through learning from people like yourself and seeing highly successful and highly influential people, life balance is not a straight line. You're not trying to aim for that. It's actually peaks and troughs and it's a an acceptance in you know, sometimes you're going to put a lot of your time and effort and energy into one area and that becomes your peak, but that might also cause a bit of a trough in taking you away from relationships and other parts of your values, but you've got to understand and make sure that the choices that you're making, you're still moving towards your goals and visions with those peaks and troughs. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's an old training axiom, you know, you get, work is important, but rest is where a lot of the positive stuff uh, occurs. Uh, there's a good book out this summer, Peak Performance by Magnus and Stolberg, that really tackles this question um, on several fronts at several layers. Um, so, you know, I think, it, you know, in high performance, we know there's periods of imbalance. It's what we do during those recovery moments and recovery periods that are critical, whether we get a super compensation and sport performance or, or life quality. Uh, to me, that's the crux. And that's a good thing for people. I think in sport, we've learned that a lot over the years that the recovery is just as important as the actual physical activity. But for people in uh, that aren't striving to be Olympians or Paralympic champions or the world's best athletes and people who are living you know, highly strung lives, highly stressful lives that don't actually take that time out, that's like you're saying that rest and recuperation can be vital for every other aspect and, and creating uh, or, sorry, maintaining that mental clarity when we're still talking about that mental resiliency. Yeah, and it has a lot of layers. You know, like uh, these guys in this peak performance book talk about taking breaks like creative people and, you know, the layers of what you do on the break. Do you go outside? Do you walk in the woods? You know, how do you unhinge the mind, so to speak, for a recovery period is critical. So it's not just the work to rest ratios, it's the the exactness of the components of what you're doing while you're working and what you're doing while you're resting. And understanding that from individual to individual too, I guess, that they delve into that into the book. Yeah, quite a bit. You know, for example, I don't do vacations or holidays real well 
But I do real well if I take what I call work holidays where I travel someplace else in the world, change channels, work with different populations, maybe even different sports. And to me, I found that to be tremendously energizing and restorative. So I think rest kind of has an ambiguous connotation for a lot of people. They think it's totally unplugged and, you know, sit on a beach somewhere or a mountaintop and gaze at your navel. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm not real good at that type of rest either. Yeah, rest can have many layers. And I think that as coaches and and industry, we're so busy analyzing and measuring and experimenting with work and work entities, we fall down uh, in exploring rest and rest entities and durations and type of rest and what to do in these rest intervals. So, you know, one of my mission with athletes and coaches is to study rest just as hard as you study work uh, in the disciplines of sport. So you encourage them to, to really get a deep understanding of what rest they're doing, what that rest is actually doing for them. Yeah, and why and how, for how long, and just like training, you know, frequencies, densities, intensities. Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm pretty high driver, so for me to totally rest, I get sick and, and I get into crummy thinking. So I have to have what we term in sport active rest. I have to be doing things in a different discipline in a different density pattern. And for me, I found that to be restorative. Um, sitting at a resort for seven days is not restorative for me. <laughs> I could imagine it might create a bit of anxiety, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so back to uh, with the mental resiliency sort of stuff, I know that you've spent some time with people in the Defence Force and that's shaped a lot of your understanding around mental resiliency. Yeah. What got me interested, I'm always searching for best practice and usually best practice in something a little bit related to sport realm, but not quite in it because I think there's a lot of confirmational bias and uh, when you study intradiscipline phenomena. So through colleagues and friends that work with special forces and SWAT teams and whatnot, probably 15 years ago, I got really interested in how special forces programs around the world teach this phenomenon we call mental resiliency. And I was shocked to find out how much money and time and energy spent by these organizations just on this phenomenon we call mental resilience. And they have layers and layers of people and institutes and researchers uh, constantly analyzing and experimenting with these realms it's uh, it's quite a scientific process if you will it's not just case studies and anecdotal uh, referrals yeah i've actually read uh, quite a bit about that sort of stuff in and there's some books out the one you mentioned before i haven't actually looked into the peak performance book yet but there's ones around have you heard of the flow genome project and the guys yes the, yeah the rise of superman and those sort of books and they have spent a lot of time with uh, Defence Force and saying a similar sort of thing, that there's a lot of time and money and effort spent on this subject with these very, very resilient types of people and athletes in their own right. 
Yeah, and the, and the thing with special forces is this is truly a life or death uh, result. So if they fail at the mental resilience skills, um, it's not only life or death for that soldier or that practitioner, it could be life or death for the entire squad. So they take this super serious. What's the the crossover then from – because obviously with athletes, there's almost that balance of not wanting them to think in a life or death um, that if they don't achieve, then they are just – useless and and that death syndrome within them but what's how do you take that crossover into your athletes from from that life or death sort of analogy well i think it it probably breaks down into semantics but for a lot of athletes it is life or death uh just on a different realm you know do i continue in sport or do i retire For a lot of athletes, that is a life or death metaphysical question. And to make those that make a living from it, I guess you're right. Yeah. So it's uh, my financial life as a sportsman versus death. Oh, what am I going to do now? Cut hair, mow, mow grass? So we as humans, like our brains are our horsepower, the overriding governor of everything in our lives even the external things that are happening because it's it's our own minds that create our perception of that external event and it's that perception that changes our internal energetic state and creates our emotions so building on what you've just taught us on mental resiliency how do we as humans and not just athletes but humans in general become more emotionally intelligent because we talk about the resiliency and you started off the chat around understanding that those um, emotions. What's your thoughts around emotional intelligence? Well, I think the process is, first of all, identifying what is good emotional intelligence versus poor, as, as it is in mental resilience skill. So learning the fundamentals and the essentials of these phenomena are first step. If you don't know what the fundamentals are, then what kind of model are you trying to drive towards? I think once you have identified a several layers of fundamentals and essentials, then circling back to our idea of debriefing with accountability partners is the critical step. You know, just your self-observation may have bias, but if you have a diverse accountability group around you, Uh, You can look for patterns of bad behaviors and good behaviors and, uh, you know, suggestive steps for correction and and things of that nature. So for me, the debrief and accountability network, once you have the essentials and fundamentals, are absolutely critical. And that goes back to the being truly honest with yourself too, like you spoke about before, because that accountability uh, can sort of pluck out that dishonesty, that incongruency, that unauthentic self. Yeah, and, you know, self-talk is a big, big part of this phenomena. And uh, if you're not honest and and you don't have uh, accountability people that ask you questions about your self-talk, you can look like you're really working hard on this process, but the self-talk is sabotaging the project. And I think one of the things that really stuck with me years ago that you said actually was, you know, not just asking the athletes, I think athletes get used to catching their self-talk maybe in a training session or catching their self-talk just before a rep, but you were saying teaching the athletes to catch their self-talk 
when they're driving to training, when they're driving home from training, catch yourself talk when you're cooking dinner or when you make a mistake in your, your schoolwork or your self-talk when you're in uh, with your loving partner, just catching, understanding what your self-talk is all the time. Yeah, that's why we encourage athletes to have a, a format when they're learning about self-talk where, you know, they stop at defined periods of the day and write down two or three of the most common themes of their self-talk during that time interval and over time looking for patterns of positive or negative behaviors. Do you use those methods with yourself? Yeah, quite a bit. I, I keep a, a, an extensive journal and diary. That's very powerful, isn't it? Yeah, so my, my two big uh, mailboxes are gratitude list and self-talk list. I think those are... Uh, those are litmus tests for me how I'm doing. Brilliant. Yeah, one one thing you taught me is how important it is for athletes to have a textbook knowledge of their sports. And I believe it's this textbook knowledge that uh, we all need to have in our own lives uh, and the potential to possess that honesty that is the key to quote-unquote success when we talk about mental training and emotional intelligence and mental resiliency. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Dan, I want to talk to you about adversity. And on December the 3rd in 2014, I was six weeks into my internship with you and the team at Altus in Phoenix when I found out about my grandparents, my greatest role models in my life who were murdered in their own home back in Australia and you were actually one of the first people that I spoke to after this happened because I after receiving the horrific news from my from my family that morning I packed up my gear and I drove to the track to personally thank you and the other staff and to say goodbye and you offered me to reach out to you anytime for a Skype chat because you knew the hurdles that I was about to face in the grieving period because you said that you'd faced some yourself and I took you up on that offer a few months later and I contacted you and and you told me about some rough patches in your life that are, that were triggered from uh, family tragedies and spoke about some potential hurdles through through what I was about to go through or sort of had been going through and first of all I just want to thank you deeply for your support through what is undoubtedly the the toughest time I've ever been through but wanted to ask if if you could share for people listening what your views are uh, and maybe even the events that have created these beliefs but around adversity and how we can learn to use adversity to our advantage well I'm kind of a a spiritual based guy so a lot of my um beliefs and evolution of beliefs have, have been in the metaphysical realm, but uh, in a nutshell, I think adversity is just really a redirection of life um, sign, if you will. It's, you know, it's like you're driving down this road of life and you hit adversity and it's a, a redirection. Uh, you may end up still going to the same destination, but you're going to go about it uh, on a different motorway, if you will. Uh, personally, you know, premature death of both parents and uh, grandparents were kind of triggers for for me into workaholism and alcoholism and uh, just general bad pattern of living because 
I didn't share. I closed off, um, tried to do it alone. Uh, really didn't have a, a, a faith driver at that time. And within five years, pretty much made a total wreck of my life, my family, my marriage, and my career. So um, my advice with adversity is, you know, it, it's not a, a dead end. You know, it's just a redirection. And it's important that you understand adversity and grief processes. And, and again, circling back to earlier talk, uh, that you have a, a tight-knit accountability group around you and that you don't try to do it alone. With your spiritual sense and that spirituality, was that something that were you already in touch with that or was that something you got in touch with after that sort of five-year period of off the rails? I've always been on a spiritual journey. I, I was a child. I grew up in the 60s, early 70s, and so that's when everybody kind of rebelled against institutions and whatnot. <clears throat> so wouldn't say I had a, a firm compass on faith, but, you know, I was really intrigued by metaphysics and spiritual realms. So, you know, studied all the great religions in the world. And I've always kind of been a common denominator sort of guy. So I was always like, well, in the metaphysical realm, what are the essentials, the fundamentals that all these things circle around? I would say my direct path into spirituality occurred uh, when I got sober. Uh, after a five-year uh, period of recklessness, and is the that's obviously something that you still practice heavily these days? Is you or not practice, but live in touch with with your spiritual sense? Well, for me, it's it's a critical component of my everyday life, and uh, when I'm in tune with it, uh, things are going pretty good. When I get out of tune with it, it doesn't take long for a car to go off the road and end up uh, in the woods somewhere. It's funny that you put it like that, actually, because it's almost, I'm guessing what you're saying here is you get just busy with life and caught up with life and you forget to sort of tap back into that inner self and you start to live externally and then all of a sudden there's things happening and you think when you reflect and probably with you being a journaler and you look back at it and you think, well, shit, I haven't actually stayed congruent with that inner uh, authentic spiritual self so no wonder there's these external um, vigilance actually occurring within my life yeah and that's why you know again I keep beating the same drum accountability partners are so critical so you know I have four or five really close friends that are on similar spiritual journeys or you know current trends in spiritual journeys so uh, we stay in regular contact contact and uh you know, always checking on one another and, and doing deep questioning, you know, not just having cursory conversations or calls, you know, layers and deep questions as like, where are you at? What are you doing? What are you thinking? I think a lot of times when you get into mental work, uh, it, it's easy to act like you're doing the ABCs, but, you know, are you doing it at a deep realm? And is your accountability group truly asking probing questions that promote even deeper and future questions to me that's the crux and the essence i love that there's a process that i've learned recently over the past probably six or eight months that's the seven layers deep 
and it's those type of questions where it's not just a hey how are you how are you feeling it's then every question leads to another question until you go at least seven layers deep yeah and it's more than just listening it's seeing and feeling and sensing it's using intuition and as many senses as you can during the questioning process sometimes body language or tone of voice or uh, movement of the eyes uh, will reveal way more than the words being expressed. Absolutely. Now, you've been quite sick over the past 18 months or so. How much has this impacted your mindset and your outlook and your spiritual connection? Um, well, it's deepened it, obviously. I mean, my my father was a nose gunner in World War II on B-17, and one of his common phrases was, there's very few atheists found in foxholes. I think when you're hit with a, a big adversity, that I think it's probably human nature to start asking metaphysical or spiritual questions at that point. Um, it's been humbling and um Probably a, a big redirect sign that need to slow down and change some life habits. Um, we're not here forever. Jumping on one of those other highways, as you mentioned earlier. Yep. And I know we had a chat before we started recording, and I, a lot of people that know your line of work know that you you have slowed down and you are coaching a lot less, and uh, hence why you know you're not preparing for these current world championships and. It must be uh, a fair shift in your general day-to-day life and your your thought processes. Yeah, it's um, as most people know in, in our industry and in coaching, you're pretty peripatetic and you live on the road and oftentimes work remotely. And uh, I've been a, a full-time road warrior since 2003. So I'm finally living in a home I bought years ago that I've spent very little time with and uh, getting to experience grandchildren and re-meet my wife again. So that's been uh, an adjustment. But a big part of my coaching has always been mentoring and teaching and researching and writing. So um, like the adversity sign just kind of redirected my energies more into family and community and reading and researching and mentoring rather than direct everyday coaching. Brilliant. That's that's a great highway to be diverted onto from the adversity. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, sometimes when you're redirected, you actually find out uh, it was time for a passion shift. What What do you mean by that, like a passion shift? Well, I think that most coaches are into service, <clears throat> some form of service, and, and within that service, they define a purpose for their service and, and a why they're doing it. And those three entities kind of form your passion driver, if you will. Um, and I think passions have shelf life. Like some people are blessed. They can have the same passion their entire life and career. And I think others are more hardwired to uh, change passions at times. Makes complete sense. And Dan, I'm going to be honest with you. You're the reason why I was able to take my coaching and therapy to the next level and continually improve Olympic and Paralympic champions. But you're also, in a sense, part of the reason why I've decided to step away from full-time coaching. And the way you just put it then creates even a little bit of clarity for myself. And I was speaking with my other closest mentor today, Irina Dovaskina, and said the same thing to her that 
I'm just not the beast that is required to be a full-time world-class coach. And I'm more than okay with that, with the the work that I've done. I'm actually more authentic and congruent now that I've worked through taking a different journey. Yeah. Well, co- coaching is hard, especially in certain sport disciplines. And uh, you, you do <clears throat> get skewed with your energies, your thoughts, your lifestyle and everything. And coaching, it's uh, a very demanding process. And, um, you know, I – I read a lot of biographies about leaders in industry and sport and whatnot, and I'm always intrigued by guys that can coach 50 years and still have that fire. And, and to be honest, there's not many of them. Uh, I think burnout and disenchantment are more the rule of thumb in elite coaching than there is a long-term career passion. But that's my bias. <laughs> well, I guess you've been coaching now, what is it, 45 years? Yep, yep. And, and reading and relating to a lot of those biographies when they get to the 50 years in the trenches. So I can understand where that bias comes from. Now, yeah. I, I see the commitment. I, I, oh, sorry. I didn't make it to 50. I'm 45 and I'm treading water. <laughs> but like, I see the commitment from, from you legends and the life you dedicate to it and, and I honour and respect it, but I also understand that that type of life um, – sort of clashes with some of my core values and my bigger visions and like like you said before you're still a strong mentor and I know what that actually means for you and how much time you spend mentoring other coaches and athletes all around the world and that's I feel like I'll be a coach until the day I die but just in a different capacity and I'm moving into a consulting type basis and working with a greater variety of sports and athletes again and uh, and also with my life coaching slash mentoring and coaching all humans to be their highest performer not just in sport so i can completely understand what you're saying there with that shift and see how your passion shift is still from your coaching and everything that you've learned with your 45 years in the trenches but just delivered in a different way yeah i think coaching is kind of like shirts you know you you try them on do you like the fit color the cut the design if not change shirts i like that when uh actually i was Speaking of other coaches, and you wrote a review for Brett Bartholomew's book, uh, Conscious Coaching, and would you say that that, whether it's he or that conscious coaching um, terminology, is is that a different shirt or is that a shirt that all coaches should be wearing underneath? I think for sure all coaches should try it on, see how it fits. Um I think that what Brett did in that book is to highlight kind of a gap that we talk about, but very few people actually act upon, and that's building relationships with those around you. Um, I know plenty of really, really smart practitioners that fail miserably at relationships, and as a result, are very frustrated in their uh, pursuit of their passion because they've never learned skills uh to the art of relationships. And that I, I believed uh, when I was reading Brett's book and I could relate a lot to it from that spiritual side of things. And when I saw that you wrote the forward and then hearing you talking about your spirituality here, I think that that is that uh, emotional awareness, emotional agility with yourself to be able to understand other people, to be able to develop and strengthen those relationships in whatever work environment you're in. Yeah, I think leaders in all realms the, the truly great ones that do it over time consistently, whether they change 
locations or geographies or even which road they're driving on uh, exhibit two big qualities that I look for in individuals I partner with, and that's empathy and compassion. If, if the leadership comes short on those two realms, uh, I, I think that they're going to be limited in scope. Do you find that common in the coaching world? That they that empathy and compassion are not necessarily missing, but maybe the the emptier barrels within the the coaching repertoires. I'm kind of a law of thirds guy, so I think a third of um, performance people possess adequate and maybe abundant empathy and compassion. I think that middle third is influenced by the culture where they work, you know, and with whom they work. And then I think uh, a third haven't figured it out yet, if you will. They're the ones that are still yet to uh, read read Brett's book and your forward. <laughs> now, a couple of other um, random things before we wrap up. Tell us about, I've heard you talk about this a couple of times, but the design, you were part of the design of the Nike free shoe. Yeah, um, I, I was doing a consultancy for uh, – a project out in Portland, Oregon, and one of the the higher ups, uh, we were discussing uh, this new shoe that they came out. It was the free shoe, and uh, they put a lot of R and D and a lot of money in it, and hadn't really taken off. It was selling pretty good at a few urban locations, kind of by alternative people, not really athletes. So we dug down into you know, how's it being presented? How are people being coached to use it? Um, you know, a, a lot of the kind of ergonomics behind uh, the shoe and what it was designed to do. And um, luckily, this guy took some of those ideas and presented it to key retailers and kind of uh, relaunched the shoe, if you will. So you, you were part of the feedback and the changes that needed to be made. Well, I don't know if they would recognize that now, but um, I, I did intercourse with, you know, one of the key guys in the marketing realm. And, you know, a few months later, all of a sudden uh, things turned around for him. So, I, you know, I'm not going to comment on how successful I was, but um, through that conversation, it's definitely a change in how they approached marketing. Brilliant. <laughs> Now, you've also worked with some other top athletes outside of track and field, quite a few actually, a lot of NFL stars and people like Maria Sharapova. What is it that draws, that you are drawn to these athletes for, do you believe, with such a wide variety of skill sets? Why do these kind of athletes of these caliber of such a variety of sports come to Dan Paff? I think one one of my gifts is I see motion pretty well. And so a lot of times athletes are referred to me or connected to me through what we call the school of frustration. They have chronic injury patterns or they've lost efficiency and movement and they've been everywhere and tried everything. And I'm kind of like the last stop on the train line. And uh, through the years just developed a reputation that, um, you know, I'm able to help guys stay in the league another year or two or, you know, cope and manage whatever chronic condition and resultant compensations that have occurred from it. And 
drive people back to greater health or greater efficiency. Do you, from a coaching perspective, do you enjoy that side of it as opposed to when you've spent time at schools and universities and you might get the athletes really young, if not being their first coach, where you can actually teach them their movement efficiency from scratch? Or do you prefer what you were just talking about then with actually having that skill to be able to keep them in the sport a little bit longer? I actually like both realms. I think they're kind of at different ends of the spectrum of coaching and teaching and analysis and whatnot. So I think I'm a better teams development coach through having to deal with puzzles of older, injured, broken, lost athletes, and then vice versa. I think I can learn from those old dogs and, and bring ideas back into team settings that improve the efficiency of delivery there. Well, actually, that's what I think you have created very well at Altus too in that environment because I remember when I was back there in April 2015 and there was a young girl that was sent to train with you from one of the universities in America and you and I were doing a lot of work and she would be on the table for a little bit with me and then off and we'd assess and back on and then within that same session within those couple of hours we're treating people like Greg Rutherford who you know is getting towards the end of his career and you know has there is a lot of therapy just to keep him going as opposed to this young girl who you're starting to correct movement patterns yep it's uh, like i said it's it's a spectral condition so you know whether it's a, a youth athlete just beginning the journey or it's a 32 year old guy hanging on by his fingernails uh, somewhere on the spectrum i think there's solutions to uh, go the next step if you will it's a powerful skill to have a powerful approach from a coaching perspective so I believe, actually, I just had a. We were talking about the randomness. Um, do you remember we were driving home from the track one night in Sydney, and we stopped at a pub for dinner, and you had your first ever chicken schnitzel? Yeah, it's pretty special. <laughs> you remember the chicken schnitzel? Yeah, sure do. <laughs> for everyone listening that doesn't know what a chicken schnitzel is, it's uh, a chicken breast that's cut quite thin, and then they crumb it, and it's uh, fried. They're actually delicious. They're what I call, they're everywhere in Australia, what I call them a safety meal. So if you go out for dinner and you're really not sure about what to have or what anything's going to be like, but they've got chicken schnitzel on the menu, you can just order that safety meal. Yeah, it's, it's probably not on the approved food list for all our foodies out there, but I, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm pretty uh, strict with my food, but I do love a good cheap meal with a chicken schnitzel. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious, actually, that that I was with you when you ate your first chicken schnitzel. Yeah, well, being being German, schnitzel's a fine art, so always curious how people do theirs. Yeah, well, it's mostly pork schnitzels here in Germany, isn't it? Yep, mm. yeah. All right, Dan, we'll wrap things up shortly, but I'm all about action, and I'd love to know what's your advice on what specific action our listeners can take today to become more impactful in their lives and in their communities? As we were talking about just a minute ago, I think that um, people that that I experience that seem to be enjoying life and have quality of life are usually servants uh, mentally. They're in some sort of service uh, to community or folks around them, uh, and, and they don't necessarily try to monetize that service. Uh, from that service mission statement, if you will, that kind of defines the purpose for what they're doing and how they're doing things, uh, which leads to why are you doing it? And maybe the why is probably the first question. And from that 
triad, I, you know, as we said earlier, I think that what is what fuels your passion. And uh, if you truly want quality of life and excitement in life and, and reward in life, I think you have to have a passion. And I think those uh, entities then should be constantly monitored, you know, by your self-talk diaries and your gratitude list and your accountability network. And I think if you got all those things rocking and rolling, you'll see a, a different change uh, in, in your emotional outlook of life. I like that because a lot of people are sort of pushed or, you know, get told these days, it gets thrown around a little bit, find your passion, do what you're passionate about. But you can't just do that. Like your triad, like you said, and understanding your service and your deeper why. Yeah. Why you're following that passion. That's one of the first questions we have on our inductions uh, with new athletes is why are you doing this? And it's shocking how many people can't answer that question. It just becomes a way of life and they get lost in their why or of their yeah. why. Hmm. Or they never had a why. Okay, Dan, before we dive into the fast five questions that I haven't actually told you about, now this is where I normally uh, give all my guests something because I love my one of my true core uh, values is giving and giving is living and usually I'd be with uh, the guests or, or have organized something but I only contacted you two days ago to see if you'd be interested to come onto the podcast and you said yes straight away fit me in whenever is good for you so I'm, I appreciate that but uh, being here preparing my athletes for the Parallel Champs and only having two days notice I haven't organized anything for you but this is my promise to you that when I do see you because I'm coming to see you, uh, I will have one of our life teas for you, which is uh, all, all the proceeds go towards different charities. So I'll be here. I am promising to give you something. I'll make sure it's XL. I don't like tight stuff. <laughs> I am aware of that. Actually, I'll bring an XL. Okay, uh, two part question: Where can our listeners learn more about you? So on the big wide web, and how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Well, currently, uh, my, my main projects with Altus, which is a private training center in, in Phoenix, Arizona, and there's plenty on our website and there's plenty of stuff if you Google. So, and, you know, I do podcasts for a lot of friends and colleagues around the world. So and I think a Google search would, uh, you know, trigger people into what we're doing and how we do it and what we're thinking. And, um, I think feedback and um, inquiry uh, is what the general audience can deliver. I, you know, I'm constantly looking for feedback and uh, questions and perspective on topics that we propose or are exploring. You know, I think the one thing I learned real early in the game, coaching is really a, a daily hypothesis. And in the scientific method, you formulate you, you do some research and some thinking, you formulate a hypothesis, and then you run it. And you collect measurable data, and you analyze at the end of a period, did we get what we thought or did we not? And then you reformulate a new hypothesis. So individuals who respond with questions or comments or inquiry um, help me to refine the hypotheses process. I can understand how that would be really powerful for you and what you guys are putting together at Altus because you do know that you have 
a lot to offer and there's a lot in there and but what do you need to give uh what do you need to give to certain level of coaches what what's what's actually resonating with certain level of athletes so i can understand that that feedback would be super powerful yeah and, and as i said earlier the debrief you know it's a term that people throw around but for me moving forward in projects the debrief process is absolutely critical and you know that's why we have apprentice coach courses and therapy courses and internships is because people that attend those serve as a form of audit, if you will, and supply debriefs at the end of their experience that allow us to move things forward in a more qualitative and quantitative fashion. Brilliant. Real life feedback. And I was part of that and I I am extremely grateful for that experience I've had. (laughs) My feedback was all very positive. Now, oh, that's good. Dan, the uh, the fast five questions. So, don't give yourself too much time to think about these. Just let them roll off your tongue. What's one habit you wish you could change? Mm, bad eating. What What's your go to food on, on that? Actually, is that the is it a chocolate or is it a schnitzel? I have a sweet tooth, so you know I, I usually crave dessert after dinner. <laughs> Fair call. What makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energized? When, I, when I'm working with someone and the light goes on, the aha moment. Mm. Have you ever washed a dog? Yes. Unfortunately, I have two really non-compliant dogs at my residence right now. <laughs> and uh, they both need copious amounts of baths. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, it's probably from my father when I was about 10 years old. He was a construction guy, a builder, and I was trying to figure out something, and he just stopped me and goes, look, son, you didn't win the genetic lottery. You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so you better learn how to ask questions and surround yourself with people that are a lot smarter than you are. <laughs> Talk about honesty. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, he's a pretty straightforward kind of guy. (laughs) Well, it worked well. (laughs) And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? Um, That I have a spiritual walk and a great family around me. Brilliant. Dan Paff, you're a legend. You're a humble, walking textbook of knowledge with X-ray vision and a life that should be directed into part of a movie. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. There he is, one of the most knowledgeable humans I've joined with on my journey. I'm blessed to have this guy in my network and I'm pumped you all got to experience some of his wisdom. Since this chat, I've listened to the audiobook Dan mentioned called Peak Performance and I can see why he recommended it. It's an abundant resource. If you want to listen to it for free from Audible, go to yourlifeofimpactbook.com and enjoy what Audible have to offer. Make sure you check out the show notes on this episode to find links to Altus that Dan spoke about. It truly is an environment like no other environment I've ever experienced. And now that they're providing a lot of online content, that's even more powerful. Also tag at Dan Paff and at Life for Excellence on Twitter or Facebook if you like this episode. They're Dan's two most active platforms. And tell us what you want to hear more of from Dan the Man, remembering that feedback to him is how we can all help him on his journey. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, 
whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E-F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at Your Life of Impact. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.